Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Hi there and welcome once again to the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and this podcast is all about the media and journalism and the world around us. I hope you're enjoying your summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, here in Scandinavia. It's kind of come to an end. Everybody's back to work, kids are back to school, that kind of thing. Uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, it's winter, so this doesn't really apply to you, but you'll just have to put up with it. I think I've had uh, in total one full day off since the 1st of May. Uh, because I work a lot with sports journalism and this is the time when everything happens. There's been an awful lot going on. And um, it's one of the downsides of freelancing that you, you just simply can't really take time off. In Scandinavia in general, people often take just five straight weeks off in the summer and they don't do anything, you don't see anybody. But uh, that's when I tend to have the opportunity to sort of jump into various different uh, jobs and projects and roles that normally I wouldn't have a chance to do, you know. But you do end up working an awful lot. And then when everybody comes back, they're going, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? You go, nah, maybe it's uh, time for me to have a bit of a holiday now. And it simply never happens. And to be honest, the tanks are nearly empty at this point in time. So I'm going to have to find some way of just sort of, you know, calming things down for a week or two. But uh, I've got so many interesting things uh, in the pipeline at the moment. There's a new book in the pipeline in Swedish. There's also a Swedish radio documentary. And there's a bunch of other things that, you know, not only do I get to do them, but I want to do them. These are projects I'm really into doing, you know. So, uh, but I will have to sort of manage it a little bit as time goes on. But enough of that this week. Um, this week we're going to talk about social media and whether we like it or not, it is now an inherent part of the modern media. Journalists use it for gathering news, media houses use it to spread their stories and consumers use it to aggregate the kind of content that they want to see. But uh, social media doesn't play by the same rules as other media. There's no all-consuming standards, journalistic or otherwise, at play here. And in terms of both the technology and morality, it's still very much the Wild West uh, when it comes to what happens there. So, for better or worse, social media is not going anywhere, and if we're to live with it and to have some sort of a relationship to it, we need to understand it better. So this week I spoke to Kieran McMahon, whose new book, The Psychology of Social Media, gives a really good, accessible insight into the forces that drive these online interactions. Now, don't be put off by the title. Kieran's book is very, very clear and very, very easy to read, and I'd recommend it to everyone, especially those who use social media to find news stories, or indeed those who have children who use these kinds to services like Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat regularly. Kieran McMahon, you've written a book about the psychology of social media. Could you explain to me sort of uh, what you mean when you say social media? Because you would say that, you know, social media has been around, or certainly social networking has been around for a long time. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's a, it's, it's a good question to start with um, because there's a lot of kind of overlapping terminology here that I think is um, it's often glossed over but I think it's useful to sort of pick apart so for example you'll often find um, like often people in the tech industry will talk about the next new social network or such and such a company is a great social network whereas actually coming from my background um, as an academic social network is a term with a particular sociological meaning like it's 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 quite simple really. It's very much um, it's a concept that can work without technology. So a social network is just a group of people who are linked in some way. So you could have like a, a social network, a work of different people who know each other and how they're connected and so on. And 
you know, you have a family as a social network, you have a community in a social network and lots of different ways that people are connected. So it's not necessary for there to be technology to have a social network. So in actual fact, when you hear a company describing itself, uh, you know, any particular platform describing itself as a social network, I always say, well, that's not strictly true because that's actually making a bit of a leap from the technological service as in the website or the app to what is actually a, a, a concept which exists outside of technology. I mean, there's even research to suggest that trees have social network and trees have friends that they that they prefer and so on. So it's that sort of thing. When you start to tease apart that and you start to see that there's actually quite a lot of complicated um, conversations going on when we talk about social media. And even social media in and of itself was a term which seems to have been dreamed up to distinguish services like Last.fm and, say, YouTube, which were specifically about sharing different types of media, as in Last.fm was about, um, is still about music and YouTube being about videos, that they were kind of trying to distinguish themselves from, um, at the time would have been Friendster and MySpace, which were specifically about networking with people. Mm. The thing is, nowadays, though, is that pretty much every social networking service also allows you to share media. So the, the distinction isn't really the case. Mm. Um, now, I'm just sort of uh, thinking of two things there. One was uh, I was watching, we have a rabbit at the back here called Smoothie who tends to sort of escape every now and again. And, you know, her single form of social media is that when she's escaped and doesn't want to be caught, she bangs her back foot off the ground a la Thumper and Bambi, right? And oh, that's yeah. basically, you know, she's sending a message to the other rabbits around because she lives with another rabbit uh, who's uh, <laughs> in the cage with her as well. But the other thing that you mentioned there about music I found fascinating because if you go back into Irish culture, and indeed this is not just Irish culture, but um, this thing of handling down songs and that kind of thing and then that you know a troubadour would come and he'd learn the song and then he'd take it to the next town so essentially all of these things and all of these ways of interacting have really existed since you know mankind came out of the cave or came out of the lakes right mm-hmm. and it, it's interesting when you kind of cast um these sort of discussions backwards into history is that it, in a way, we kind of see that certain things and certain uh, practices have been going on in some form for some time. But in another way, they've been they've been quite different. So one of the points I make is that in the book early on is that actually the way that I think about social media is very much in a psychological sense is something it's less to do with the media and more to do with the individual and what they're using it for and what they're trying to do. And there's definitely been things like that going on for a long time. Like there was even... In the Roman times, um, a lot of the the elite classes would have um, there's a there's a famous mural actually in Pompeii. Um, it still remains on on one of the walls there, and it's a, a couple sort of have their 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 picture painted on the wall outside, and to show that they were actually to try and say that they were members of the elite. Um, the, I think the man is holding a book and the woman is holding a pen to her face and this is sort of saying we're literate we can read and write so that means we're a member of the middle classes and around those times they would have used what were known as hipponomata which are kind of like a little bit like a diary but it was and a little bit like a shopping list but it was where people sort of write things down um different kind of phrases and mottos and things to kind of um keep themselves aligned with whatever the ideology of the day was and that kind of thing i find is 
in some ways, and you'll find other writers will say things like, well, that's like social media. It's like people tweeting about what they had for breakfast and then tweeting about politics the next minute. But actually, the big difference is, is that was private. Nobody else was supposed to read it. Yeah. And that's the, that's that's the critical thing about social media today. It's a psychological process which is happening very much in public, and that makes it different from our previous technologies of the self. Like even like therapy is a technology of the self. And then compare that to also when we say, well, social media should be regulated like media, but it's not really like a radio station because, yeah. you know, you don't you, radio stations compared to the average individual using social media simply doesn't have the the reach is completely different. Mm. So it's a it's a very tricky problem area at the moment. Yeah, but there is also the thing you mentioned the sort of the elites in Pompeii and ancient Rome and that kind of thing. But there was also a system whereby or a situation whereby people would meet in public to discuss ideas, right? So, you know, Aristotle Socrates, all these guys, you know, like, I mean, it's basically, you know, I suppose the modern equivalent uh, before social media would have been sort of people meeting in pubs and coffee houses in the 50s and 60s in New York uh, and in jazz clubs and discussing the sort of the ideas of the day. So there has always been a sort of a social aspect, you know, there has always been a public discourse as such. It's just that now it has changed and, and been sort of speeded up, um, you know, when you start to use technology to do these things. But one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, because this podcast basically covers, you know, things as they relate to sort of journalism and media, right? Um, one of the things that journalists do a lot of the time, if you look at the attack on the mosque in Beirum just outside Oslo last week, right? Every journalist I know was looking for a name and then they were going looking for a Facebook page or a Twitter account related to this guy who's alleged to have uh, attacked, gone into the mosque and tried to shoot people. Now, you mentioned that um, when we set up our profiles, we're pu- putting forth a sort of a very, not exactly sanitized version of ourselves, but we're trying to put out uh, the kind of version of ourselves that we want everybody else to see. So my question to you really is, what can we learn about people People from their public profiles on social media and should we be wary of what we see there yeah it's it's a tricky one because I mean in any sort of way that you try to represent yourself it, only you can know really whether or not that's accurate but for the most part it's going to be very difficult to say that this is the real me and this isn't and um, you know whether is the, is a, if somebody writes a diary and they describe all of their personal and intimate thoughts within that is that the real them you know, or or is it more is the real person who they're actually showing to everybody else in their daily, daily, uh, everyday interactions? So this is the sort of thing that when it comes on to like such as the incident you, you, you're talking about and it, this happens all of the time where I, I'm kind of concerned for uh, for media and for journalists in how social media is being used for this sort of uh, fact gathering, because as you say, you know, what exactly does it say about the person, what they're putting into their social media profiles? And for the most part, these things are going to be, you know, journalists have to file copy and they've got deadlines and so on. And they're grabbing this information and pushing it out and say, well, he said this on his social media profile. And I I think that sort of, I mean, it's in the kind of the very fast news cycles that we're in at the moment. And it's moved away from, you know, your sort of door-to-door information gathering. And I think that, it's um it's tricky because it varies across personality what people put into their profiles and certainly particularly as it's sort of extremists and things like that that you're talking about you're not entirely sure whether and it's a critical thing that's been noted by other writers that that within certainly within extremist circles there's an element of irony that isn't uh, that is very hard to decipher and that's something that is it's it's really critical about online communication that 
certain things aren't going to come through in bare text. Mm. So, I mean, and this has happened, I think, before with certain cases of mistaken identity that, you know, journalists will go looking for a certain person and they find a particular profile that might have been thrown up very quickly by somebody else having a laugh and then things are taken out of context and you've got, like, you've got, you know, not, not misinformation but disinformation going out. So I think, um, certainly, I think, uh, as things are going forward with regard to how people are dealing with this, the complexity of expressing yourself on social media, I suspect that, and it's something that kind of was touched on in, in the book as well, is that people are putting less information about themselves into their profiles. And I think that's possibly a function of, number one, how psychologically developed a person is. I think it differs across age. But number two, as well, how established a person is. So I think certainly people who are quite well established in their careers have no fear of putting anything onto their social media profiles or into their, their content. And I think you'll find that people who are younger or people who are less well established or people who are more likely to be victimized or deprived are not going to put as much explicit information into their profiles simply because it could come back to haunt them. And one of the things that I suspect you will have come across as well is there's a certain... Um, campaigns which have happened in the United States whereby it's generally um, reactionary conservatives are keeping a very close eye on the social media profiles of um, people who are hired into academia and they're generally looking after people of colour who are hired into academia and as soon as that person gets hired into say uh, you know a highly respected university or they get tenure or something like that what happens is is that the, the um, reactionaries have already gone through their social media profiles and found something that this person has said which is uh, which they find objectionable and then as soon as the person has gotten the job they highlight this seven year old tweet or whatever the case mm. may be and say such and such a person is not suitable for this job look at what they said about X, Y and Z five years ago and so that's kind of a known um, phenomenon in the United States I think it's certainly moving into Europe but again, it's another example of what I mentioned in the book was what's known as time collapse. So that you, because all of your past history on social media, on your profile, is very hard to control. It's very hard to delete all of your tweets without deleting your entire uh, account. Mm. Because that's all there, that's going to follow you around for the rest of your life. And it's as if the past has collapsed onto the present. Mm. And so I think the younger generations now are simply going to move towards more private spaces and put less information up on their profiles. Mm. You mentioned as well, uh, when you talk about those things at time collapse, that people put different messages out there depending on the level of their reach, right? So when mm. I started a Twitter account and I had like, you know, 200 followers and now I've like 12,000 or something like that. And I have to be conscious of the fact that uh, I'm reaching a whole lot more people and that some of the people who follow me or pay attention to what I do on social media are themselves very influential people who have far more reach than I do like I usually go back to the soccer player Gary Lineker or former soccer player Gary Lineker who's now a broadcaster and sometimes like late at night I might tweet something to Gary just a joke or something like that and if he retweets that and I get up in the morning my mentions are destroyed with yeah. people who thought it was funny people who thought it was dumb people who think I should hang myself this kind of thing you know but 
Uh, how do we manage that then? Because, you know, if I tweeted something dumb, you know, uh, when I started my Twitter account, whatever year it was, you know, would you suggest to people as a sort of an act of self-care to think, okay, now all of a sudden, you know, my new employer is my friend on Facebook. Do I need to go back over everything I've done there and take it away? Or, you know, are we expected to be understanding of one another? Uh, you know, because again, there is this thing of, you know, as you rightly say, people are trying to draw conclusions about who you are and what you are as a person based on what you put out on social media. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I remember a, a long time ago, I, can, I don't have the reference now, but um, when I started getting interested in social media, probably about 10 years ago, I remember coming across a phrase that basically said that how this is going to evolve is that we're going to become more forgiving of each other and of past indiscretions so that, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody runs for election and a photograph is dug up of them when they're a teenager, it's not going to matter. It's not going to be newsworthy. Um, that was 10 years ago. I haven't seen it happen yet. And maybe we, can take... <laughs> we live in hope. <laughs> we live in hope. Um, I would hope that we move towards a more forgiving society, but I, I don't see that particularly happen. So I think for your listeners, I think the best kind of self-care that they can do is, I mean, deleting things is actually would probably make more sense. But it's the, the simplest thing that you can do, and you can do this actually quite easily on both Facebook and Twitter, is to download your archive. Um, and you, it's it's actually a, it's actually a pretty good service from both of them. I'm not sure how it works on the, on other accounts, but you'll download it and then you can view in your browser very easily all of your different uh, the different posts you've made over the over the years. And it, it's a great sort of self-reflective exercise because it brings you back to where you were, you know, five years ago and what you were thinking. And it, it makes it easier to delete the kind of you have a way of deleting it. Then it is fairly laborious, but it does gives you some sense of your own growth as an individual. And I think that that is something which um, is missing from an awful lot of our practices with social media is that we're not really reflecting on what we're doing we're not thinking these things fully through because it's very much an instant sort of a process where your your attention is constantly directed towards the now mm. and i think that is well it's it's great for you know news and you know staying up to date with things but it's not necessarily the most healthy thing to be doing all of the time so i do think that people need to take some time out i mean i'm not I'm not one of these people who says you know you have to take a digital detox or you have to delete your account and all that you just have to simply try and be more conscious of what you're doing mm. whatever method you have for doing that um i think should include downloading your archive and reviewing what you've been doing over the over the last number of years at yeah. least that's the thing. I mean, I, I realized how combative I can be a few years ago. And that comes from the thing of sort of kicking up because, you know, a lot of what I try to do is about people who don't get to speak at all. And you try to speak up for those people or to give them a platform. But in doing that, and as recently as last night, I was blocked by Sweden's Minister for Justice because, you know, there's this debate about uh, drug use in wealthy areas here. And that's not taken in any way seriously, whereas in the suburbs, the poorer suburbs, people get hammered, you know. And now all mm. of a sudden he's gone, oh, well, look at the, the rich suburbs. And I go, well, hold on a second. You created this. Like, you've been pissed in the face of these people for years and he blocked me and it was harsh and yet I feel like that one I'm, I'm pretty okay with I'm not going to delete that mm. I'm not going to apologize because it, it's fine but you know in the past I would have been critical of other people other journalists and you know the way things were presented and that and there is that fine line of okay am I sort of you know overstepping the mark here and I have been I hope I've been become a little bit better at doing that but one of the things that I found fascinating Kieran when I studied media and communication science I came across this idea 
and again I'm missing the citation but let's not worry about that for now um, it's that the media can't tell us uh, what to think but they can tell us what to think about and that brings me on to what we share in social media that doesn't necessarily come from ourselves but it comes from you know the, the media outlets that we look at you know whether they be the Irish Independent or the New York Times or whatever else like that have you looked at, uh, at what we choose to share and what that says about us at all um, well, that's a, it's an interesting one. I mean, in terms of um, in terms of personal content, people are definitely trying to, um, I think, put across a certain version of themselves. In terms of um, media content and sort of news content that people are doing, I mean, it's it's interesting because it, in a way there is the sort of conversations that Alexi and you and I have. We're we'll talking about politics and so on and different current affairs. And I don't think that's actually a massive, it's not It's not a big part of the actual social media ecosystem. I remember somebody else describing it as, you know, we're just one um, subreddit in a massive Justin Bieber forum. <laughs> <laughs> that's put me in my place, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it, it's kind of like we, we have to remember as well that fundamentally social media platforms are advertising platforms mm. and they're not like we're not necessarily I, I hate to use the phrase if you're not the if the if the thing if the thing is free or the product I, I which I think is an oversimplification but there is a certain amount of thinking where I think conversations like this and an awful lot of the um, sort of controversies around social media have simply been a kind of awakening moment where people remember what the thing is for in the first place mm. so it's really like the, when we talk about content that's being shared it's actually what we should be thinking about is the amount of advertising that's been shared on there as well because that's really the major function of it and that's what um all of the policies are driven towards and it's like as as you you've probably discovered before is that there is like say if you're talking about the regulation of hate speech and you're talking regulation of terrorist content and all of that sort of thing that's very di that seems to be very difficult for um social media companies to take down and to regulate around but they're very quick to take down copywritten content yeah so anything that is intellectual property that is actually owned by somebody else that's regulated very easily so it, it fundamentally comes down to really i think in these sort of situations what we're trying to reflect upon is our own values to these systems and how these systems value us and how that fits into a wider picture of what our society is actually built on mm. which is commerce and capitalism um because i think you can talk about how um people share different content on social media but it's ultimately feeding into the algorithm and the algorithm which rewards uh, interaction and and um popularity and so on which i think fundamentally and i make this point excuse me, towards the end of the book, is that um, the problem with the algorithmic timelines, which sort of dictate and teach us certain lessons about what content social media wants from us, are actually starting to produce, and this is the sort of thing that you're mentioning as well with regard to how many, the amount of followers that you have and how that reflects you on your experience of social media. That's feeding into very much uh, a model of social interaction which is based on hierarchies mm. and you know that you have a very different experience if you've got 7 million followers or if you've got 70 followers yeah. and that is actually recapitulating the inequalities in society already and the whole promise that we had of social media if you cast your mind back to like the Arab Spring and 
you know, this the um, the ice bucket challenge and that kind of 2010, 2012 era, or even before that era of social media, where we were sort of said, social media is going to flatten things out. It's going to be very democratic and it's going to be very egalitarian and it's going to solve all the world's problems. Well, actually, when you start al- adding in these algorithms that uh, put different things on your timeline, which make it unequal, it's actually making things more unequal. So I think there has to be a certain reckoning not just about regulation of content, but what those conversations fit into a wider understanding of what our societies are trying to do. Because I think this this model of social media, which Europe has more or less imported from America without doing anything itself, with, without really putting up any alternative, is actually, I think, is something that we really need to have a sit down and think about how we build something better rather than uh, simply try and regulate the problems out of the platforms that we've imported from Silicon Valley. Because again, it's something that um, it's not entirely unknown. Uh, you mentioned early on in the book that uh, most of the big platforms that we're talking about here are Silicon Valley companies. They are American companies. They were set up in that environment, that atmosphere, that culture, right? But we've had this before with everything from hamburger restaurants to Hollywood movies to you know the whole term of a shock jock, uh, a guy who goes on the radio and will say absolutely anything to keep people listening. And in turn, then that sort of generates advertising dollars and that kind of thing. So a lot of these dynamics are not really new in terms of how they grab our attention, but they seem to work an awful lot quicker uh, in terms of, you know, how these messages can be disseminated and that kind of thing. Now, one of the other things that you, you mentioned in the book was how we seem to understand the privacy issues at stake, right? We seem to understand that we are the product. We give Facebook a certain amount of our personal information. They target ads at us. You know, we understand that the more information we give them, the more money they make out of that. And yet we still give them that. And you mentioned uh, this idea of social media and psychometrics and the collection of data. Could you just explain a little bit what psychometrics are and how companies then use them to target us with sort of ads and political ideas? Yeah, the psychometrics is it's basically um, it's how psychology claims to be uh, an empirical science. So it's the idea that if I give you, I can give you a questionnaire with a load of different questions on it and which will measure like your attitudes and your thoughts and so on and it's fundamentally based on the idea that human psychology whatever it is internally can be broken down into into a number so that i can give you i can ask you a number of questions about your attitude to x y and z and i can measure your attitude by asking you different questions and saying well do you strongly disagree or do you strongly agree with these statements and giving you a score Mm. on the basis of that and that's basically um it's a quantitative science it's heavily to do with statistics and so on now for the most part i I think it's a pretty barmy way to find out what how people think um i fundamentally question the idea that psychology is quantitative i don't think it's i think maybe some of it is maybe Maybe some of it is, maybe some of it isn't, but I'm, I'm, I don't think I think the jury is out. Um, but the the issue here is, um, it's it, I mean it's a funny one really from the outset because for the most part, if you partake in any kind of psychological study, whatever it is, whether it's personality, whether it's any kind of experiment or so on, you'll go in, you'll take part, and the psychologist will take the knowledge from you and they'll say thanks very much for participating. Here's a 10 euro gift card or whatever the case may be and they'll send you on your way now most people i think will participate in psychological research because they want to find out about themselves Mm. in that case they're going to become 
be quite disappointed because for the most part, the psychologist won't actually share the results with them. Yeah. And you won't find out where you score on on whatever scale it is. You won't find out how smart you are. You might do, but for the most part in research, you don't. And the genius of what um, the the scientists behind Cambridge Analytica, um, Michal Kosinski and a number of other guys at, at um, Cambridge, was they figured that with all of the data that was on social media, which they can access via its API, so they can draw down data from Facebook, or they used to be able to, anyway, this is about this is a number of years ago, they could then figure out what a person's personality was if they compared their answers to a personality quiz with their Facebook activity. So what sort of things do you click like on? And does the, and if can we compare that to your, you know, your answers to the extroversion questions? So what they did was they put um, a personality quiz on Facebook, like and like there was there still are a lot of these around, but like a few years ago there was it was Facebook was nothing but quizzes, and you'd push these out. And what the what the researchers did was they said, you know, if you fill in this short questionnaire, let us access your Facebook data, and then we'll tell you about your personality. Yeah. So it actually gave you back something that most people never get when they participate in psychological research. So it told you about your personality. And in return, the researchers got all of their um, Facebook likes. So then they could say that, you know, somebody who is extroverted is most likely to click on this and somebody who is conscientious is most likely to click on that. And that was, I mean, it's it's a groundbreaking study. It's kind of like it's a little bit questionable ethically, but to be honest, not really that much because it, it's it was completely within the terms of reference of um, I'm pretty sure it was within the terms of service of Facebook and everybody knew what they were getting into it to the extent that anybody ever really knows what they're getting into when they're doing an experiment online but what happened after that was that the researchers that data was taken it was sort of they ran the experiments again and then the sort of stuff was transferred over into Cambridge Analytica and so on and then that data was then used those sort of learnings were then used to target ads now, the critical thing here is that once this this sort of fiasco broke, to my mind, and I make the point in the book, I think this only really, like, it only really told people what was there in plain sight all along. Hmm. This is what Facebook is for. Now, whether or not the actual psychometric targeting of ads, as in send, pushing an ad to you based on an inference that you are extroverted or introverted, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that actually works. I think it's actually probably you're going to get more um, effective ad targeting from using basic things like location, age, and gender, and socioeconomic status. Hmm. I think if you add in personality on top of that, I don't think it's going to make a whole lot of difference because I think your ad targeting is probably going to be pretty good. But the reason why I think it sort of exploded because it felt very invasive and it also, I think there's a bit of cognitive dissonance here in that people sort of had, and this is the big problem with social media, is that people are essentially know this is going on, but they push it to the back of their minds and try and forget about it because they're getting the use of a free service. And also because I think an awful, like a deep, um, people have their own psychological reasons for using it for their own personal development, but I think people like looking at other people's stuff as well. Hmm. So that's the you know the most of the activity that we do on social media is actually lurking. Yeah, 
it was it was interesting to see that um the recent thing with the you know that aging app that you you install the app and you take a picture Mm. of your face and it tells you what you look like in 20 years and that kind of thing and then people were told well basically you're giving away your image to somebody who's using facial recognition technology and everybody basically went meh you know they didn't seem to be that because the sort of you know what economists would call the marginal utility that they got out of that they got the bit of crack out of it and they got the likes and that kind of thing you know but um do you not see it as being a little bit insidious right you know if you look at a youtube algorithm now because you know i was given out about about a year ago because um it, it, like no matter what I watched you know and I cover a lot of martial arts mixed martial arts and you know that kind of thing boxing and every time I'd look at a video on YouTube about a boxer that maybe I hadn't seen before or mixed martial arts is up and coming or an interview or something and all of a sudden it was suggesting uh, Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson I have fucking no interest in hearing anything that either of those two guys have to say but yet YouTube was sort of trying to lure me down that particular rabbit hole Uh, so I suppose the question is you know uh, what happens if you do start to sort of follow the algorithm as this sort of you know is produced to you is there a danger of going down a rabbit hole uh, because of the fact that these things are so well able to target your your, and not just your your sort of your, your intellect but also your emotions because essentially you're telling Facebook and YouTube what you like yeah, and it's a, it's it's an interesting one because it's a it's you're telling it what you like, but it's also is it is the individual passive in this? Are they completely active or are they completely passive? Because there's certainly an interaction effect here, and I think at the same time, I mean the, the whole idea to, to me of radicalization, I think, is an interesting one because it's kind of spoken about in the media like it's some sort of power up in a in a super mario game like that guy was radicalized like it was some sort of spell put on him mm. and I, I i fundamentally i i've kind of queries about that as well it does seem that i i think there are a number of things here i mean in terms of going down that rabbit hole i think there is a big onus now on the likes of youtube and lots of other platforms to figure out what exactly they're trying to do here they're like their basic proposition is that they want to keep you on the site and as long as possible Hmm. and that's you know because once again it's an advertising platform the longer you're there the more likely you are to click on an ad however it also feeds into as well the sort of thing that i talk about in um, the chapter on updates about the threat of invisibility and what you're seeing there on youtube is the opposite side to that so it's like when you post something online and nobody interacts with it nobody likes it nobody retweets it or, or shares it or anything like that that sort of gives you them gives you an implicit message that you're going to be invisible unless you post something that people interact with mm. that's kind of i think i, I certainly think you, you can possibly see in an awful lot of the content that goes online if you watch the um career history of people who have been producing content for youtube and for anything else for a long period of time that it often becomes particularly with like visual media like instagram and youtube is that it gradually becomes more extreme it doesn't stay in the middle ground because to actually chase the algorithm and to chase the viewers and the likes and the retweets you have to constantly produce something which produces more interactions mm. and i think ultimately that's quite um it's unhelpful really because it has as you say it puts people down the rabbit hole now not everybody's going to turn into a Nazi because they stay on YouTube but certainly some people are and I think there is uh, an onus on YouTube now I can see how the guys who you know design uh, and engineer the systems behind these algorithms are like well 
you know, it's doing what we wanted to do, as in keep people online. But they also have to think about their responsibility. Number one, they have to think about the actual content that they're hosting. And number two, they have to think about maybe possibly like they they see it as a sort of a tree and the tree has you know it's very popular now there's lots of people on it lots of people online it's making lots of money but if they start pruning it where exactly do they start and i think you're going to have to go for all kinds of things number one you're going to have to kick all the nazis off which they're going to have to put spend an awful lot more money on that and number two they're going to have to actually trim some of the branches so that they actually come to an end So, I mean, this is the thing, like you can be, it's something that I've mentioned to other researchers is, is the very idea of reading social media. If you think about it, like there is supposed to be a website where you read what's on it or you watch the videos, but when are you supposed to stop and how are you supposed to get to the end of it? Mm, exactly. It be completely endless. And it's one of the problems I have with modern um, responsive design on websites that, you know, the way at the bottom of a website, there's like the about and the contact at the very bottom of the page responsive design now on a lot of pages you scroll down and it keeps populating more and uh, more content so you can never get to the bottom where the help section is or the contact section is and i go it shouldn't be like this and there should come a point where you know you're online and it actually gets to a point where there's nothing left for you to watch mm. well i think that that is the problem with you know this this whole unlimited idea on netflix on spotify on youtube because there literally is no end you know if you do brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, there's no end to that sport or or to that martial art in itself and you know the more you consume that material the more material is going to be suggested to you whereas you know if you read a book about it you get to the end and then you fuck off outside and you do something <laughs> meaningful with your life you know but unfortunately that's not uh, what the internet is there for you know and if i think back actually to the um when i first started sort of um noticing or studying or writing about the far right was back in about 2001 2002 uh, on message boards and these endless discussions would go on and eventually the thread would die off and basically the same discussion would start again under a different guise so again these things are not new they've always existed but it's just you know the format of them is changing so i suppose my final question to you would be we've seen tom from myspace is now sitting on the website on his own and uh, nobody's been there for years updating it bebo is gone that was a very popular site in ireland where do you see this ending up because already ready for me now I'll tell you exactly where I am I use Instagram when I am traveling for work I use Twitter basically every day I barely use Facebook at all anymore I have a Snapchat account and my kids are on it and they're using that all the time but I'm never there so um, Snapchat seems to me to be it's time limited so it disappears it's not as public you can share things you know very quickly and very personally with one or two or a limited group of friends where do you see social media going and the way we consume it going and will it make the world a better place or a worse place Okay, well, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, there's a number of ways to to look at this. I think, um, first of all, I think there's going to be a lot more serious regulatory attempts um, to control this um, at the moment. I mean, in the United States, it's the one thing that Republicans and Democrats agree on is actually that they need to tackle social media somehow. Um, Facebook got a $5 billion fine, which isn't a lot to them but it's not like it's not insignificant either it that will it'll pinch Mm. um i suspect you're probably going to once the new commission in europe gets in i think you're going to see more moves for europe to to uh get technological sovereignty is a phrase that was mentioned by ursula von der leyen um now whether that would be simply to try and regulate um the silicon valley 
giants or whether we try to create something else. Um, I, I, I'm of the opinion that I think, and the thing is, like, I'm not anti-Facebook or Twitter or any of these companies. I think they have created wonderful technologies, which lots of people find very useful. But I think they do need to be regulated in um, in a more sensible way. I think the onus is really on, I mean, if you, if you talk to people who work in these companies, they're like, well, come on, regulators, we're dying for the regulation. So just tell us what it's going to be. I think the big problem is that politicians in the West have really dropped the ball in this over the last 10 years and really need to up their game, become a lot smarter about these technologies and talk to people who actually work there and figure out what can actually be done. Um, I think that would help because at the moment this whole context is in is in a, a state of chasis and uh, it's not it's not changing anytime soon um for the general public i think i suspect that people are going to continue using things but they'll probably pare down so they may as you say people will people may try and um they may drop facebook or but they may use instagram which Facebook don't care about because they own Instagram as well. People may drop Twitter, but they may stay on on, on Snapchat. So you may see more careful use of these things. Um, but I think in the long run, like, and then at the at the under, other side of things, you have, I suspect China is going to start pushing more of their social media services into the West as well. And you see that with the likes of TikTok doing very well. And I think TikTok have a, an office in Dublin at the moment as well. Yeah. So... There are those kind of developments. I think as well, people are going to, I think you see younger generations um, using these things in a different way. And I also think fundamentally, it, it's. I don't think it's going to go away. It's not going to change really very much in the next few years. But I do think fundamentally, you will see that the likes of your younger generation of people will see that while social media has its downsides, that they can actually use it to change the world into something that they want. And I think this is the the key if i was to put any sort of um positive spin on this i think that um social media is actually going to be really important in um uh, leading the fight against climate change because it's the only really technology that we've ever had that allows people on all sides of the globe to communicate at the same time and i don't think climate change is going to be actually fixed without a sort of global consciousness and if social media could, if the social media giants actually thought about this for, for a few minutes and actually said, well, climate change is really, really big issue and it's really important to get everybody involved in it. And you can actually do this using social media. So if all the social media giants got together and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to, we're going to change our algorithms simply to promote climate change messaging. In Open fairness... I'd almost forgive them for everything they've done with the Nazis if they saved the planet for us. Yeah. Kieran, the book is called The Psychology of Social Media. Is it an academic book or will people find it in the shops and on Amazon and that kind of thing? Oh, it's on Amazon. Uh, you can find all the details on www.kieranmcmahon.com. It is, uh, it's only 30,000 words. It is, it's somewhere between academic and uh, pop science. So it's very light, easy read. Um, most people read it in, in a weekend and it's aimed at anybody who's kind of interested in this and wants to learn a bit more. And hopefully you will find it uh, interesting and useful. I can only echo that because when you sent it to me first, I was thinking, Jesus, this is going to be 800 pages now and then I'm going to have to read all it. But it's not. It's really, really easy to read. It's really, really clear. The chapters are set out in a very, very clear manner. I think it's absolutely key for everybody who uses social media and parents of children who are using, using social media to read it as well. So KieranMcMahon.com and they'll find all the details. Is that right? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Thank Brilliant. you very much.
thanks so much for your time today, Kieran. Thank you. Not at all. Thanks very much, Phil. There you go, Kieran McMahon there, and I strongly recommend that you get a hold of that book. It's uh, it doesn't take long to read at all, and I found the information in it absolutely essential. It's one of those things that's now sort of you know t- to hand every time I go and do anything about social media. Uh, that's it for this week. Remember that this is a listener supported podcast. If you can contribute on the Patreon, please do. I'm not going to beg you. Um, uh, please, if you can at all, spread the podcast right so that more people get to listen to it, more people get to hear it, more people get to interact with it. Because I'm noticing more and more online, especially on so- social networks, that you know what we're trying to do here is we're trying to expand the understanding of what journalism is and what it does and how it works and the more people that understand that uh, the less likely we are to have sort of gobshites spreading information that uh, can neither be understood or there's misinformation or that's you know it's basically not journalism you know if we can tell the difference between the two the world is going to be a much better place now there's a whole bunch of fascinating people uh, that I've lined up for interviews in the coming weeks. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who they are yet because you just never know who's going to do it and when but we're going to be discussing subjects like uh, feature writing uh, hopefully going to be discussing a man who's been in prison for 18 years for being a journalist uh, and still hasn't been released and uh, a couple of other things besides. So uh, have a great week wherever you are and I shall talk to you again next week.